Hello and welcome to the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day with a podcast about some of the ideas that will be up in the air and up for discussion at the 2017 Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. This year's theme, a highly topical one, is growth and inclusive prosperity. With me is one of the regular forum participants, Andrew Hill, management editor of the Financial Times, where he's also an associate editor. Andrew, you've been working for the FT for almost 30 years, reporting on all sorts of things, but what, for the last seven years, particularly on management. What sort of changes have you seen in that three decades in management? I guess I think of myself as a bit of a newcomer to looking at management as management. And for most of the rest of my career at the FT, somebody who's written about companies and thought only incidentally about how they're run. That's in itself uh, quite a revealing statement, isn't it? Yes, I think, the, I think part of it, though, is that gradually over that time, I began to realise that there were some principles in play, if you like. People were running companies in ways that had some consistency. What's changed, I think the main thing that has changed, is that what started as the study of, if you like, organisations, established organisations, has become much more about the people running organisations. And the organisations themselves have broken down into different shapes and sizes, not established companies always, often smaller than that. Are we talking about the way management is done or the way people talk about management, the academics, for example? Because I think there's a big sort of rift between those two things that emerges nearly every year at the Drucker Forum. Part of this is I started writing about British companies when I joined the FT in the late 80s, and the the big charge against British companies has always been that managers are sort of amateurs. They come to it, they're appointed to management roles without really having the training. And I think one thing that has changed is people, particularly at the bigger companies, have taken training of managers more seriously. But the way in which the academics think about management, often, to me, now I look at that, often seems overly theoretical. I'm very keen to write about how people run companies who are actually doing this rather than simply observing it. And there was a big bias at places like Harvard Business School 50, 40 years ago against people who did anything like walking around a factory floor. This wasn't what we did here. Well, the rift there is between the Harvard style, which has just been criticised, actually, in a, in a big new book called The Golden Passport that I've looked at and written about, and the Henry Mintzberg idea that management is about what people do when they practice management. Henry Mintzberg is the McGill professor who is, is sort of the anti-Harvard, if you like. I think there is a sense in which a lot of what has been happening recently has been happening sort of from the bottom up. And the idea of a sort of top-down, we will manage in this way, is being eroded from the bottom. That's one of the things that I'm most interested in, actually, is not so much the the radical startups that have managed in a way, or if they're managed at all, they're managed in a way that is unrecognisable, but actually the way in which large corporations, large established organisations are being changed from the bottom up and having to adapt some of the things that they've done for centuries in some cases. How disruptive is digital? I've taken the view for a few years now that in in the very near future we are going to stop adding the tag digital to things because 
everything will have some element of digital. And you begin to see this in the big consulting firms that I also write about. Some of them started three or four years ago or or even earlier to offer a digital part of the consultancy. And they're gradually beginning to realise that actually that is something that feeds into everything they're doing. But it is disruptive in the sense that because everybody is connected, including the individual employees, you have got far more communication going on that is not any longer dictated from the top down. And at the same time, I think you've seen the way in which in the last week, for example, we've been looking at British Airways having a problem with its IT and customer relations and so on. It's accelerated everything that companies do. I think we're at a stage now where we have a generation... I'm wary of generational distinctions, but I think we're at a stage where uh, boards and senior management come from a generation that was not raised with digital as one of the main things that was dictating how they behaved. And a 30 to 40-something cohort is now coming through that is far more at ease with these digital approaches. And so we may be, we're probably just coming out of the period when the greatest gulf in understanding existed between board level and middle management and employee level. And that's going to narrow in the future and change things, I think, more quickly than it has changed in the last 10 years. That brings up a thing that I bring up a lot in these podcasts, and that's my encounter with Professor Peter Drucker, 15 or 20 years ago, when in the course of a wonderful morning, an expansive morning discussing all kinds of things, he said almost as a throwaway remark that he did not believe that computing had yet begun to impact on American business. And I didn't pursue it stupidly because I thought, oh, he's old now, he doesn't understand. And then I went away and thought about it and I realised he meant he was talking about the the heart and shape and architecture of the organisation. And he was right, because people had applied computing to the the 20th century shapes and hierarchies of the mass production company. And in fact, something much more profound was happening. And it's only now actually being made evident with data flows and clouds and that kind of thing, how radical an impact it will have on the shape of the corporation. Yes, I think that's right. I interviewed um, Jim Collins recently of good to great fame, and he's also a, a great student of Drucker and, and uses Drucker as a model of how in the next 30 years of his life he hopes will unfold with even more productively than the previous 30. And one of the things I asked him was, does he not worry that the ideas that he put down 20 years ago are ideas that, that he might have got something wrong? And he says he worried more about the dark matter, the the areas that he might not have thought about, one of which would be, when I pressed him on this, that organisations, the sorts of things that Drucker studied, are not the areas of the future. In other words, the organisation being broken down in the way that you describe would be a, a field of study that would change to being a... It wouldn't be a structured organisation any longer. It would be a networked organisation. This is an area, of course, which is very, very hard to study compared with going in and saying to General Motors, I want to have a look at your hierarchy. Studying a networked organisation is much more complex. The argument against the networked organisation used to be, until relatively recently, how would a networked organisation produce stuff? You still need to have a structured organisation to actually manufacture and make stuff. And, of course, that's becoming less relevant as you begin to 
push out to smaller additive printing, 3D printing, and other things that can make that can revolutionise manufacturing. And you take all that seriously as as change making. I think the combination of things, I mean, Gary Hamill and others have been going on about this for 20 or 25 years, and you kind of think, well, is it ever going to happen? But the combination of the digital technology, the manufacturing technology, the generational change, these are things that ought to have an influence on the way in which organisations are changed. Now, it is easy to underestimate the inertia of existing organisations. So I think to say this is going to be a great revolution, as Gary probably would, and an instant revolution is probably an exaggeration. But I think the, the gradual change will accelerate. Now, the theme of this particular Drucker Forum is inclusive prosperity. Very topical, perhaps, in the light of uh, Brexit in Britain and the election of President Trump in the USA, and a sort of feeling among, apparently, lots of voters that they've been left behind, that maybe that bargain that since the Second World War people have participated in, that growing national prosperity meant growing prosperity for the individual worker, that's been shattered by what's happened in the last 10, 20 even 30 years, perhaps, and that's a, that seems to be a reality. Capitalism is looking a little bit threadbare, isn't it? Yes, that's true, although there are some interesting paradoxes buried in this. I've just come from a meeting of our editorial conference, our leader writers, looking at one of these paradoxes, which is that the rate of joblessness has dropped to low record low levels in some developed countries, including the U.S., at the same time that we are worrying about artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning and other things eradicating jobs for people. So one of the questions, I think, buried inside the inclusive prosperity label is what types of jobs are we getting? There may be more jobs out there in some developed countries, but if they're part-time, if they're gig economy-type roles... Are they generating the prosperity at an individual level that is poorly measured by economic measures that say unemployment at a low rate, therefore everyone is fine? I think there is a lot of detail, and it goes back to the question of networked organisations. There's a lot of detail that is hard to measure in traditional economic statistics that conceals perhaps a lack of prosperity at local level that creates these political tensions. At the same time, that's the sort of general overall economic stroke corporate sort of outlook, but there's also the, the way companies behave, and an awful lot of companies have been behaving badly, haven't they? Yeah, there's a really interesting new book out from Rick Wartzman, who used to be director of the Drucker Institute, in which he calls it the end of loyalty, and he traces the ways in which four large American companies, including GM, Kodak and General Electric, have cared for their workers, if you like, as a, as a mutual self-interest point in the post-war period and how that has disintegrated. And I think that is one of the big issues, is if we are less loyal to companies and companies are less loyal to us who wins out in the end or who loses in that particular give and take. You can't have a company any longer that is saying, 
I will be the exception with a 30-year career at the FT. I don't see my children having the same. But they need to find some way of underpinning their prosperity with other means. They've also been behaving badly to their customers. Look at the airlines, look at, uh, well, the banks, look at pharma, look at the automobile industry. They pay all this lip service to customers being their most important asset, and then they sharp practice them. Yes, and that seems, in the end, very, very short-sighted. I'm a trustee of a, of a charity called the Blueprint Trust, which backs the Blueprint for Better Business, which is trying to encourage businesses to be a force for good. And one of the things that we're examining is how do you create the virtuous circle that reminds companies that their customers are also their employees or their employees are also their customers and therefore that in mistreating the customer you're creating a lack of trust in business that over the long term undermines the prosperity of the company and therefore of the people working for it and therefore of its customers. And I think people have lost sight of that, that they need to be, companies have lost sight of the fact that they need to be paying attention to the links between all the stakeholders, not a word I like much, but all the stakeholders in that corporate organisation. And if companies become largely robot forces in the foreseeable future, then the human sort of morality that may inhibit bad behaviour within an organisation may begin to be eroded simply by the fact that the robots are being directed to do things by very few people who are interested mainly in profitability. Yes, and I think the drift towards the less human nature of business is a dangerous drift. I interviewed a billionaire entrepreneur in India when I was there last year, and uh, he was extolling the fact that his factories could now be run by very few people. And I said to him, yes, but over the long range, given the number of people in India, if you, anyone who visits India immediately is struck by the huge human problem there, did he not think he had any responsibility towards workers and future workers as the business? And he sort of shrugged and as though this was not a relevant question almost. Yes, but if you asked him, did he not need consumers in the future to buy the things he was making with his robots, and do those consumers not need an income from somewhere or other, then you put that problem for the whole of robotize capitalism into perspective, don't you? Yes, I think that's exactly right. This is a case where when I write columns on it, I probably am pushing a line. I would like to think that we would develop a mutual respect for machines, if you like, that would have humans and machines working well together. But that requires a very, very clear view and a brave view on the part of the capitalists in charge of the corporation to be able to say... I am sustaining these human workers for the sake of the wider community, even as others are galloping down the path towards a much more machine-run corporation. It would be fascinating to ask Peter Drucker about the here and now, wouldn't it? Yes, I wish we could, really. I mean, I think your point about the computer future, he passed away at exactly the point where this was becoming the most relevant question, and so we never got the chance to ask. We have to try and rebuild what his thinking might have created in this area. With that key element of the way he saw organisations and and problems, humanity, fantastic humanity. Yes. The interesting thing, I keep a kind of close eye on books that come out on business, and I noticed a couple of years ago that entries for our Business Book of the Year award 
we had a year when it was mostly about machines and robots. And then there was suddenly a year when out of the entries, a large percentage started to include the word human in the subtitle or title. And you realise, if there's a hopeful view of this, it is that realising that machines are capable of doing far more things that humans used to do will make us more conscious of our human capacity and make organisations more inclined to harness those particular attributes of humans that can't be replicated by machines. I may be over-optimistic. Are there particular organisations, particular corporations that you really think have strong lessons for everybody? I think there are some large companies, General Electric, Unilever, and Michelin is one that is thinking about this, that have put a lot of thought into how they educate future leaders and indeed run their businesses. I'm always impressed by how much effort goes into thinking about the future, even in companies that, when I used to write write about them as companies rather than as managed organisations, you would just say these are listed companies heading for the next big profit. And they do that, of course, as well. So there's, there's thought going there. The other company that obviously is fascinating to me is, and to a lot of people, is Alphabet, the Google parent, mainly because it seems to me to be perched on the precipice between becoming a conventional conglomerate and being a different type of organisation with running ideas in lots of different areas. It's going to be fascinating to see how it develops. It has the capacity and the money, of course, to do a lot of the interesting experiments that other companies are wary of doing. You've got children, I've got grandchildren. Any thoughts about how they should go about tackling their futures? Well, one of the things that worries me, my children are now teenagers, they're they're nearing the end of their formal education, is that formal education hasn't necessarily equipped them for what is coming in the next 20 to 30 years. So one thing that I strongly believe is that educational institutions should be adapting to the fact that they are going to have to re-educate our children and grandchildren over their careers and not get stuck in the idea that once they're out in their mid-20s, they're into some other type of workforce, that they're into another phase of their existence, which means that they don't have to go back for education. I have this flippant idea that universities should be issuing a kind of voucher that we could all use once we pass the 50-something barrier to go back for six months of re-education or retraining or even just to have our brains stimulated again for the next phase of our lives. So that's one area. People talk about resilience and adaptability, but these, of course, are the very hard things to teach. And knowing how to become adaptable is something that I think our main educational institutions add on, if they do it at all, as a sort of byproduct of their teaching. Those are general lessons of life. What about particular things? Some people would say coding, computer coding, is the key to the future. Well, my worry would be that you you go down one sort of particular channel, and then within 10 years or less, in particular in uh, technology, that turns out not to be the thing that you Because the computers will be coding themselves. Well, that's one risk. I think there is, again, it's a bit of a cliche, but the learning to learn part is obviously important. Being able to say, actually, I'm not afraid to pick up something new will become a kind of attribute. And, of course, that goes right to Drucker's lifelong learning and learning organisation ideas. And I think our organisations, governments and private sector institutions and organisations do have a responsibility to make sure that people are 
able to learn and indeed are equipped to learn the important things rather than being stuck down one particular silo, one particular narrow part of what is important for the future. Many thanks to Andrew Hill, Management Editor of the Financial Times, one of the people who will be speaking at the ninth Annual Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. More podcasts coming up soon.